You're listening to the Bible Guys Podcast. I'm your host, Devin Ferguson, along with Professors Jerry Hollinger and Rick Kleinert. The Bible Guys is a podcast focused on knowing God better through what He has written. You can find out more by following us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Bible Guys Pod. You can also contact us via email at BibleGuysPodcast at gmail.com. Well, welcome, guys. It's good to be back here another week on the Bible Guys Podcast. Uh, We have a question from a listener that we actually got from Instagram. Uh, This is what he asks. He says, hey, Bible Guys, I'm a new listener, and I had the pleasure of having Dr. Hollinger as a teacher in college. I'm catching up on the podcast. Wait, 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 Devin, for a second. Let's let me just qualify this. I feel like this has got to be said. We we've <laughs> we, you guys know where I'm going. We've had a few episodes. Um, some we've recorded there in the can, and we get questions from people. Uh, tell me how you know. Like I had Jerry in class. I'm glad Jerry's here. Look, I'm here too. And uh, this hey, is those sorry. are the questions I send in. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, my I'm j- I'm kidding around, but I just want to let you guys know that if you get, you know you look at your Bible guys mug. I'm on the right side, so if in case you need me, I'm here, or I could just be Jerry's sidekick and his comedy relief. I'm happy to be either one, but but I'll sit. Over. <laughs> yeah, can somebody please send no. in a question oh. and and ask for Rick to answer yeah. it, please? Yeah. If you're I'm listening so to this, needy. I'm so I, I need this. <laughs> hey, Rick provides the scripts for all these shows, so let's oh, right. let him fool you. No. That's right. I'm just I'm just the 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 the, the good looking guy in the room. So I'm just gonna go over here, <laughs> and Jerry, you take this one. You call me if you need me, buddy. I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> oh my goodness! All right. So um, back to the question. It says this. Um, uh, I am catching up on the podcast. Thank you for that. Uh, but was curious if you could speak on the differences between the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. So ah, there we go. Okay. All right, Rick, we need you. Okay, okay. W- what do you need me here for? Well, we need to figure out the distinction between the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. Okay, so if I'm catching this right, we, there is a distinction because of the way the words are used. Um, some would suggest that, uh, so for example, the, the three times that passage is, that passage is used, or that phrase is used, is in Philippians. The day of Christ. Right, the day of Christ uh-huh. is in Philippians, and that's in... Uh, chapter 1 in verse 6, then in verse 10, and then later on in verse 16. All right, so you might, there might be a question here is, is that only, did Paul only record that in Philippians? And if so, why? What is it? Is it just conducive to Philippians? Is, is there something that Paul is trying to teach there? Yeah, the, um, Paul will use the phrase day of the Lord, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5. And I do think there is a distinction between the two phrases. If one looks at the references you mentioned to the day of Christ, I think all of those would would refer to the time when Christ returns for his church. And, you know, you'd find intimated in all of those passages a time of, of evaluation of the believer by Christ. And so the phrase would fit nicely with that of the rapture occur when the rapture occurs we've been talking about and when the rapture occurs one of the events to transpire when we are in the presence of Christ is um, we will all as believers pass through the judgment evaluation process um, so I think that that is what Paul is referring to 
as the day of Christ, which I think is distinct from the day of the Lord. Okay, so this kind of goes with what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks here. Uh, we talked for two weeks on the snatching uh, or the rapture, as, as commonly called. And so what we're saying here is, and your idea is that, and I would agree, that the phrase day of Christ is a completely different statement than the day of the Lord, which we'll be talking about um, the day of God's coming wrath uh, on the world. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was reading through um, Amos this past week, and you, you find that phrase, the day of the Lord, throughout Amos. And even the prophet says, you're looking for this day. You do not want this day. This is a day that's going to be, you're talking about the day of the Lord. It's going to be a day of judgment where God is going to um, completely uh, bring his wrath on the world. So I, say, I see that as a difference. I would agree with you. I think there is a distinction between the phrase, the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. You know, what's, what's remarkable to me in in systematic theologies and other books, eschatology, when eschatology is discussed, it seems that very seldomly do the authors touch on the day of the Lord. And yet, to me, this is one of the most critical concepts dealing with eschatology in general and the timing of eschatological events in particular. And when one goes back to the Old Testament, you know, as you mentioned in Amos, for example, the phrase the day of the Lord is used numerous times in the Old Testament. And then at other times, the phrase the day is used, also referring to the day of the Lord. And then you have hundreds and hundreds of passages referring to events within the day of the Lord, but are not specifically called the day of the Lord. So you're dealing in the Old Testament with a massive amount of material dealing with the day of the Lord. And if our eschatology is correct, then that would mean that at some unspecified time in the future, the church will be snatched out of this world, as we've been discussing. And then at some point following that event, the day of the Lord will begin and will reach far out way beyond that even. So, Whenever one talks about eschatology, the day of the Lord is really a very, very important uh, phrase to understand. Right. And I would agree with you uh, that these are two different uh, phrases, or these phrases are talking about two different uh, periods, because in the context of Philippians, when he talks about it, it's always, uh, like, for, for example, in chapter 1, um, he's talking about um, the good work that God has begun in us, um, in making us more like him and growing in spiritual maturity will be, will be, will carry on until the day of Christ. Uh, and then finally in verse 10, uh, he says this, he, his prayer is for the people to grow in their knowledge and discernment, um, so that they may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. So you see a distinction between the day of Christ and the day of the Lord, whereas the day of Christ in that passage, at least, carries the idea of a, a presenting a yes. we stand before the Lord. And in verse chapter two, 16, um, the other time it's used in Philippians, Paul uses it to say, Hey, my prayer is that I can boast in the day of Christ for how you dealt or how you, um, I guess you'd say how, how you were presented um, to the Lord in that day. And so you see in all three of those passages in Philippians, that the day of Christ centers around a presentation of believers 
Um, and that's more conducive, like as you said, if our eschatology is correct, that's more conducive to that snatching, the rapture, than it would be the outpouring of God's wrath on the world. Totally agree. And, and then when you compare all of the hundreds of Old Testament passages on the day of the Lord, one finds a very different picture being presented. Now, if you, if you have a dull social life, as I do, uh, with virtually nothing to do, you know, I spend time, you know, hey, I'll just go through those hundreds of passages in the Old Testament because there's nothing else on my social calendar. And, and as I do that, what I begin to discover is, as you point out, the day of the Lord is frequently taken up with the concept of wrath. And when those passages are examined, what we discover is that a lot of those days of the Lord have already occurred historically. So, for example, when God poured out his judgment historically on Israel or Edom or Babylon or Assyria, those are referred to as days of the Lord. Those are periods of judgment. But what we also discover as we go through the passages is that those historic periods of judgment also foreshadow a climactic period of judgment that's going to fall upon the entire world. And again, as you look at the descriptions of that judgment, this is something that has never occurred historically, and therefore we wait for it in the future. Now, let's, let's kind of let's stay on this question for a little bit, and let me just kind of move the conversation here for just a second, because I think this might be pertinent here. I think this is one of those perfect examples of where we take um, the phrase in its original context without trying to imply meaning on it. Um, that happens a lot as you study scripture, and I hear it a lot where um, we might, we see the phrase day of, the Christ, day of Christ, and then we also see day of the Lord, and without really taking the time to look at it, we just kind of group them together. Um, exactly. Can you think of any other passages for our listeners? Can you think of any other ways that we do this without even thinking about it? Oh, man, that, that is such a great point when it comes to interpreting the Bible. Just take the most basic uh, phrase, salvation. Uh, when people see the word salvation, they automatically assume that that is referring to the fact that, you know, God saved me from my sin and I'm going to heaven someday. And then when they read the Bible, they, they put that meaning on every text when in fact, more often than not, salvation is not dealing with that at all. I know D.A. Carson mentions the overload fallacy in his book, Exegetical Fallacies. Um, I think this is just an example, or things like this would be an example of what we just commonly call eisegesis. Mm-hmm. Um, when we put our perceived meaning of a text or a word, and then we just build on it. And I think we can uh, create, I wouldn't say in this instance we've created some kind of dangerous thing, but it does help us, it assists us as interpreters to know the distinction Paul is making here between day of Christ, day of the Lord. Um, you mentioned salvation. Uh, I was thinking of, I was also thinking of at the coming of Christ is that, you know, there are some who say that's, that's just second coming and some right. rapture. Um, and so I, th- I think it is, I think it's important to differentiate 
between terms. I think words matter and how we use words are, are really important. Um, you yeah. know, and that, that's really common in, in the field of prophecy and eschatology. And a lot of the, the terms we use in this discipline, people often assume that these are technical terms. That is, they always have the same meaning. When we talked about um, in the podcast last week about meeting the Lord in the air, uh, those who take meat as that idea that we meet Christ and then automatically come back to earth with them. They're having to assume that's a technical meaning. Uh, you mentioned the term coming, parousia. A lot of those who take a post-trib viewpoint will argue every time you see the term parousia in the New Testament or coming or appearing, that always refers to the second coming of Christ. So, as you said, we need to be careful to look at each word in its use, in its context. And that's something that we do in all languages. I mean, in English, it's the same. Words have a variety of uses. And so we always need to be careful to look at the specific instance and see what uses is in place there. Yeah. And we also have to consider, I think it's important also to uh, understand that not everything is a linguistic issue. I think sometimes you can get bogged down in it um, is, is the same thing. I, for example, I was in a meeting today and uh, somebody made a statement and they said, um, and here's how they said it. They said, Jesus Christ died for you and I. Does anybody have a problem with what I just said? <laughs> and somebody said, well, not in what you said, but how you said it. He died for you and me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. uh -huh. so, it was kind of, so it was funny, but I think sometimes we can get caught up, uh, especially those of us who have had the language study and we're early on maybe in our language study. Because I remember all of any Bible lesson or any sermon I had early in my language studies, I tried to find these little nuances with this with the language and 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 I thought that my listeners would just geek out over it would love to hear it and then my wife was like yeah huh, nobody really cares um, mm -hmm. about some of that some of it's important we get that like today but there are some times where yeah that word just means that word and you can't yeah. really make a whole sermon point out of it well and the the Greek language has changed uh, over the centuries and gone through multiple phases. And and so sometimes people will appeal to a subtle nuance, like you've said. Yeah, that may have been the use in the classical era, but in the Greek of the New Testament, that might not be in play anymore. And I think also people tend to, some, now this, I've got to be really careful how I say this, because I really don't mean it like I'm going to say it, but I don't know how else to say it. Sometimes we can overblow the value of Greek and Hebrew. And by that, I mean, sometimes the languages, as critical as they are, they simply give us parameters. They don't always solve every interpretive problem. So we need to really be cautious, I think, in how we use the languages. And, and I think you're right for all of us, when we look back early in our careers, we probably made uh, statements regarding Greek and Hebrew that were a bit too dogmatic and, um, you know, a bit too absolute, I think. Maybe this, maybe this could be a fun podcast another time of th maybe our, our horror stories of, of language classes. Um, 
And so, I mean, I've heard this before. Maybe we just let's have some fun with that. We've got some time here. Um, I found Greek easier than Hebrew. Oh, yeah. 100%. Okay. You did too? Did yeah. That? What about 100%. you, Jerry? Which one was easier for you, Greek or Hebrew? I think it was Greek, though. I was kind of burned out when I started taking Hebrew, so yeah. I'm not sure if it was harder, but I, but I would probably have to say Greek was easier for me. Because I always heard that whatever was easier for, like depending on Greek or Hebrew, whichever one was easier for you, the other one was going to be more difficult. Hmm. Um, and I, I think I found that to be true. And it wasn't the, for Hebrew, it wasn't the reading left to, or right to left. That wasn't hard for me. Um, for me, it was, um, and, and some of our guys who are or, you know, maybe pastors or seminary guys, you, you, you can feel free to email us in here. And this is where I'll get my questions when you guys vent on me about this. Um, and that's fine, but hey, I just I, burn my sermons after I've given them, so I clear myself. But I felt like Hebrew was a, like there were so many rules that were if this then that hmm. that you're like I don't even know what to say here because is this that case? It was like an I, it was like the I before E rule, but yeah. for a whole language. Hmm. Um, I remember being in class and the professor making a statement of, you know, this is always this. And, uh, uh, and, and so then we got to translating and I read it and, and there's like, okay, well, I know I said that, but not this time. And I'm like, I finally just was like, okay, don't call on me anymore. I'm getting depressed. Well, one um, thing we know is never use the word always. Right. Yeah. <laughs> For real. But, never. But, I t- but I tell students, um, yeah, you know, never use the word always. <laughs> Greek, yeah, never use always. I tell students that Greek is something you could teach yourself, um, Hebrew, you're going to need someone to walk with you through it. It's uh, oh, for real. It's a tough language. It's a tough language. You know, and and speaking of terms, you know, when we look at the day of the Lord again, not only do we see the phrase used differently, but when we look at those passages that use the the day of the Lord as far as the future is concerned, that really helps us, at least in my view, on where I put the timing of the rapture. Because the judgment aspect of the Day of the Lord passages deal with that future tribulation period, which has not occurred yet. And I think that when you take all of the Day of the Lord uses, you can see that the Day of the Lord is precisely parallel to what we refer to as the tribulation period or um, Daniel's 70th week. And then when you come to the Thessalonians and Paul tells the Christians that you will be saved from or delivered from the wrath of the day of the Lord, to me that becomes a very important feature. And so not only determining what the day of the Lord is, but then how other events fit in with that. So that's why I have always held that the rapture will occur, and then at some point after that, the day of the Lord begins to take place, and then will last that entire seven-year tribulation period. Um, When one talks about the day of the Lord, a day is not merely composed of darkness. It's also composed of light. So I think Devin was kind of prompting me to finish the rest of this. So the day of the Lord is a period of dark judgment. But one of the purposes of that judgment is to bring the nation of Israel to repentance And when Israel comes to repentance and she calls on Messiah to return, Christ will then return to earth. 
And when he institutes his kingdom, that then brings in the period of light of the day of the Lord. And in my view, then the day of the Lord will continue throughout the kingdom age. So you have the period of darkness during the tribulation and then the period of light during the kingdom age. And, and then by the time the kingdom's over, then I think, Ricky, you were talking about this a few weeks ago, how that the triune God will then reign throughout eternity um, as the kingdom enters that last, last phase. So this is, a, this is really a huge concept with tons of passages and a lot of ramifications for uh, features of eschatology. Yeah, and Jerry, thank you for including me in, in this conversation, uh, even though we know it was all about you targeted on that one. So uh, if anybody's listening... You are my inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> if, quote Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> that was so sweet. Um, <laughs> if any of you are listening and you just want to talk, ask me my favorite color, uh, what do I like to listen to music-wise... <laughs> Uh, feel free to email us at uh, BibleGuysPodcast at gmail.com or you can hit us up on Instagram. You can also find us on Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram or Twitter. Apparently I'm needy and I need the followers. So, so feel free to do so. <laughs> <laughs>